Hi, good afternoon, good morning, and good evening. I'm Jeff Dubisky, Workforce Logic's Chief Solutions Officer, and this is our next installment of The Deep End, Conversations in the Global Talent Pool. I'm joined today by, with uh, John Sumser, who is a well-known talent executive, uh, a fellow, senior fellow at the conference board, and also principal at HR Examiner. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, this is gonna be a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. Well, I, I always uh, appreciate our conversations and your energy and, and enthusiasm, especially about talent, uh, about really kind of protecting and driving the candidate experience and allowing organizations to find the best talent possible, which uh, seems to be elusive for some and, and some have built out the secret sauce. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of prefaced our, our intro and our discussion was thinking about how organizations have historically created these sort of hurdles, these technological hurdles of putting uh, an ATS in place of uh, uh, workflow management and fundamentally Boolean searches, ATS matching to get to the right talent. What, what are some of your thoughts today about how um, that has impacted both the candidate experience, the recruiter experience and our ability to just get to right talent? Well, I'll tell you what, the thing that interests me most is that when you, when you make the selection process about matching a job description against a um, resume, which a lot of the things that you're talking about do exactly that, I think you missed the job, right? That, that's the, the, the there's a, there's a large expressed frustration with the ability to find talent, but I think that comes from the fact that the job is never what's written down and, and my experience is never what's in my resume. And so there are no machines that have intuition. They can't read my resume and understand what it actually means. And they can't read the job description and understand what it actually means. And both of those things you know, my resume, uh, if, I'm, if I'm a 40-year-old professional at the, at the beginnings of my peak earning years, I've got 15 to 20 years worth of experience expressed on a single page of paper, right? You, you, you know, if you have 20 parking tickets, your record is longer than a single page <laughs> of paper. <laughs> right? and, then, and then you have this thing called the job description, which is part marketing document and part whatever the hiring manager could remember about the job at the time that they had to wedge in writing the job description or boilerplate dragged out of a job description manual that HR has to manage compensation policy rather than the work. Um, and so, so you get a lot of dissatisfaction with that. Um, and there are not good solutions that actually find you the people who would be good at the job. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I think um, a number of years ago, maybe three or four, Work Fountain had issued a, uh, an analysis that they did to found that most organizations' job description library is about eight years out of date. And when we think about the pace of change and how uh, skills are adapting and moving forward, eight years plus the advancement of that obviously puts us way behind in our ability to, to get to market, to understand what we're, uh, we're looking for. But, but what I really want to focus in on, and you mentioned this well, is, is, you know, the job is the intersection of the person and the position. And when I think about not necessarily a newly created position, but loss, right? So I, I've worked for you, let's say for eight years and uh, I'm getting a promotion or I'm moving horizontally, or maybe I'm leaving the organization altogether. Um, I'm not the same job 
that I started for you eight years ago. I'm an amalgamation of all the things that you and I have done. And, and obviously that's hard to unwind. Um, what are some of the ways in which maybe uh, that creates both fatigue on the recruiting uh, uh, establishment to begin with, but what about some of the biases that we're starting to see bubble up that we're trying to unwind as well? Well, so that's a, that's, that's a great big giant um, rabbit hole to run down. <laughs> The idea, the idea that you can have an unbiased system is nonsense. It's nonsense. And the idea that you can take the bias that we as human beings bring to a process and eliminate it with math is also nonsense, um, right? The truth is our AI, our intelligent tools are trained mm -hmm. by us. And just like I'm training a puppy right now, and, and the puppy learns some funny things because I repeat things and train him unintentionally. Um, and then I'm surprised when he does what I trained him to do. Um, <laughs> that's sort of what the bias problem is like in, in, in this job stuff. But I want to drift back a second. HR builds job descriptions in a library to manage compensation. They don't build it to manage work. The hiring manager is supposed to manage work, but there's that gap between what HR does to do HR's job and what's required to do the actual work. And that's the first place where the gap begins. And then as you mentioned, as, as I get good at my job, the job changes. You know, the, you know, it's the learning curve is things seem hard and then they get easy and then the next thing seems hard and then it gets easy. And so my capacity to perform expands as long as sure. I'm in the job and learning how to do things better over time. And that isn't ever captured in descriptions of work. There's a there's a um, thing it used to be the case that much of work had a time and motion study um, associated with it so people would come physically and watch you do your job right, right. And document what the job was and what the bits and bits and pieces were and we have none of that any longer any job description you see is a theory about what might be there and has never been physically verified um, and so so it creates this chasm that um, you can't solve the problem with the existing infrastructure. That's a great point. That, and, 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 and that's ideal. When you think about knowledge workers, that has disrupted the whole time and motion study effort. And now with automated lines and the things of people doing actual multiple roles, I think you're absolutely right. We can't get down necessarily to those incremental values. Um, and if I do back up then, because you elaborated on this from our sort of second to third point, um, is that we, we, we look to AI uh, to do things. I, I've always kind of codified it as, can you do it faster, more accurately, right? And create capacity for those that are leveraging those tools. And so if I heard you correctly, we're doing something faster and more accurately, which is potentially the inherent bias that maybe we have built into that. So how do we potentially, A, ensure that we're constantly pulsing ourselves to maybe unwind the bias, number one, but number two, can we use the learnings of uh, multiple iterations of that, that AI to maybe give us better insights um, as to how that, uh, that bias can be um, leveraged to ensure that we widen 
sort of the talent pool. Um, and then the last piece, and sorry about the multiple points here, but, but you know, when I think about then, what's the impact, therefore, that we're looking at in bringing in um, um, you know, people that are maybe much left or right of that in regards to some of the cultural impacts? Well, that's the whole question in a nutshell. <laughs> so, so I want to, I want to kind of dodge off the one answer in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that you just gave me a doctoral thesis to write. Um, so, so I went to the the car dealership this morning to drop my car off and got a loaner, and, and okay. it's a brand new, um, all the gizmos loaner, and it's got this function that. If you're going over 40 miles an hour and you start to cross the white dotted line, it steers you back into your line. Sure. Well, that's a good bias, right? You don't want me drifting into traffic and hitting somebody else. It's a great bias to have in a process. And, and the thing that, that it was fun to play with, but the thing that you have to remember is it's not driving the car, it's just correcting the car. And, and the best way to use intelligent tools is just like that. They are there as an additional input um, and maybe a guardrail, but they're not the answer. The answer boils down to you, the decision maker. And when you, the decision maker, make a decision, you are liable for the consequences of that decision, even if the car told you to get back in the lane, you know, um, regardless. <laughs> Car told you to do. If you hit somebody, it's on you. And sure. the same thing is true with with these intelligent tools. And that's not always very clear. Yeah, I think you bring up a a, a great soundbite there, which which I like to call: Is that a decision support tool, or is it a decision point? Right? Are we are we getting more information to just make better decisions? Um, and, and I'm curious if we were to you know, kind of put that into hyperdrive and some organizations have, right? They have this significant AI on the front end, whatever it might be in, in terms of a very, very simple um, uh, RPA, uh, a chat bot, whatever it is to help navigate the talent. Um, the, the question is, and, and, and I think I threw this out when we last talked is it's kind of like reaching down at the beach and grabbing a handful of sand and coming up, right? The tighter you squeeze to get to that bullseye of talent we lose so much wonderful talent from the periphery. And so, you know, is there a way for us to maybe re-sculpt to say, is this person a good fit for the company and the job? Is this a person that's good fit for the company at some point, but not this job? Or this person actually is not good for either so that we can leverage that into broader pools. I'm not really sure if we're headed in that right direction, but what are your thoughts? Well. So, so what's interesting is we have a generation of people doing recruiting who are used to solving recruiting problems with Boolean searches or um, some other kind of matching. And there's nobody, I'm unaware of anybody who is taking wisdom about personnel selection and trying to make wisdom about personnel selection the function that we're dealing with. Right. And so, so if you have hired a lot of people, you're able to see things about people that don't have names and aren't measured. Um, and they can fall into the murky area of bias. But 
the capacity to see potential in another human being and understand what it takes to realize that potential is absent from machines. That's not what they do. That's not what they do. But we haven't even begun to think about codifying this really important human skill. And there are people who are great at it. There are people who are really great at it. And it is not shuffling the cards so that two cards match each other a little bit more closely. It is a the capacity to get to know you, imagine the job, and be able to imagine what you do when you got the job. Sure. Um, and it's a rare, it's a rare thing. You have to you have to have somebody who loves being a first level supervisor and has been one for twenty years in order to have that kind of judgment. You can't have that kind of judgment when you're twenty. And you bring up a, a, another thing that I kind of harken back to, to, to days of, of maybe old for me, but um, there was always uh, a number of companies that slipped in an interview that wasn't an interview, right? I think about uh, uh, the, the front desk individual that would uh, sign people in and, and have some general discussions to try and understand what that person was, or the person that might walk them around and in the midst of that, talk to them a little bit. People drop their guard a little bit. They're not thinking that they're on. And I used to call them sort of the barometers of the a good indication, the gut feel. Will they fit the organization? What did they say off comment, off cuff? And should we take that into consideration? And I think you're right. That's that's where some of this, I think we 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 run amiss. Uh, we 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 filter them out too much on the top end, and we're missing some great talent on the bottom end. It's 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 almost like you wish you had the the Harry Potter sorting hat, right? You just kind of right. drop it on them and it tells you good for this, good for that, not good for that. Um what about, though, maybe moving this into the candidate's hands, right? So, so if we think a little bit about, uh, well, Phenom people kind of coined the term guided discovery as the use of their technology, right? That, that an individual could take control of understanding an organization and guide through the myriad of, of, of uh, hurdles and, and roadblocks that might unintentionally be there to understand where they might fit. Are we starting to see more of that fall into the hands of, or control of a candidate or no? Now you're talking about something that causes great bias that, that disturbs me immensely. Um, so so I'm, I'm a pretty good musician. I'm a pretty good musician, but I didn't have any idea about what it meant to make a living as a musician. And people I know whose parents were musicians were able to easily imagine what it meant to make a living as a musician. And they went on to have really great things. I did not have the information necessary to imagine that. And so when you think about the talent that's in our world, talent is not distributed in the same places as opportunity is, but many times people don't have the experience to to do the imagining that's required to navigate the kind of system that you're talking about. So if I come from a small business family um, and I've been working in the family business since I was 10 and it's been a great success and you ask me to figure out how to fit into someplace like um, um, Facebook, um, it's not gonna make any sense to me. 
Um, I, I know small business people who look at what happens in large companies and wonder how in the world those people get paid because they don't appear to be doing any work. Right? And, it's, and so, so the idea that I could imagine, for instance, that, that I have every skill necessary to be the manager of a night shift in a hospital somewhere, um, and there's no family access to that. I have all this mythology about what it takes to work. Um, I don't think you penetrate that by showing people things that they can't imagine themselves doing. Right. And, and so that means that you're appealing to privilege. Um, that when you show people their opportunity, you know, as, as a white man of my age, I have been able to do anything I made up my mind to do with no boundaries around it. And that is not true of women. And that is not true of people of color. And that is not true of people with um, uh, gender and sexual orientations that are outside of normal realm. Those people are unsafe in a lot of circumstances that I don't have to think about. Um, and so they're not able to imagine the things that I do without seeing any risk at all. And to suggest that they should be able to imagine that is to perpetuate the white guys in the slots. So <clears throat> that's probably a, a whole separate uh, deep end conversation for sure. And we dove right into that one. Um, let me let me actually back up before we maybe continue with that regard of of, of uh, opening up a opportunity for people to really understand an organization, um, because I think you mentioned you know how do you understand and even imagine doing something? Um, one of the things that I, I tend to find um, at issue um, is the job titling, right? And and I know the matching engines are trying to do this and do this well, but uh, as you mentioned, a uh, uh, um, a machine, not at least taught, uh, will not intuitively understand that if you are an HR manager, let's say at an organization like a GE or Ingersoll Rand and overseeing a, a function or business unit of, of you know, 10,000 people, that that equates to a large HR business partner, maybe a vice president. Um, and so are you saying that maybe the the, the, the ability of a, a guided discovery will not allow people to see what their next path is in a career or that a whole different viewpoint of if you've done this, you could transfer those skills here. So, so let me use myself as an example again. I went to, went to college and got a philosophy degree. And when I came out of school with a philosophy degree, I couldn't even get a job pumping gas, which for the younger people in the audience is something you used to be able to get paid to do. And, uh, and clean the windshields while it was being filled. I remember that. Couldn't those. even get a job like that with a philosophy degree. And, and a guy who was a really great judge of potential, I, met, I happened to meet him um, socially, and he said, I think you could do something in my organization. And he worked inside of a 250,000 person big company running a technical function and hired me in. And if you had told me that there was any chance that I would ever be an engineer, I would have just laughed my butt off. <laughs> but it turned out once I could see what engineers did and had access to them, 
I got really motivated. I got engineering credentials. I became a great engineer, but I couldn't have imagined it unless somebody dumped me in a sure. position where I could see it, right? Sure. And, so, and so that capacity to visualize depends on having some touch of some kind of experience. Um, and many of the things that people do today are not well represented in the media. Um, it's knowledge work. And so for the same reason, we don't have good time and motion studies of it. It's hard to explain what the work is. It's mm -hmm. hard to see if you, if you watch me, I'm a guy who sits and yells at his TV all day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't really tell you about the value creation. Sure. Um, it just sure. tells you about what the behavior looks like. And, and if you wanted somebody to imagine how to do what I do, it would take lots of time to communicate yeah. all of that, right? And and that's not part of any of these equations. Yeah, I think what you bring up is is something near and dear to my heart. Uh, when I first jumped in the recruiter chair many years ago, um, is that the resume doesn't give the story of the person, right? Right. What 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 is that person's story? What is their potential? And I think we unlock so much with that opportunity to talk with people. And yet, because of the systems we have in place today, we kind of don't have the time necessary to do that. Um, but as we think oh, a little, oh, 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 let me stop you there. The reason we sure. don't have enough time is that there isn't budget for it. Not because we're too busy. It's that it's that the value of recruiting is not understood by most organizations, and so they pound on recruiting to go faster and be cheaper uh, when, I agree. when the right answer is go slower and get it right. Um, but that doesn't sell very well because you can't drop it to a bottom line return. You're right. Well, and I think we could. I think there's a lot of metrics that show that if we get the right fill, reduce turnover, higher sales volume, all those things eventually do. But but a CEO or a CFO doesn't like to hear that, well, I can give you my ROI in about 18 months. Right, right. <laughs> they want to know the next business quarter. And I agree. HR and especially recruiting, last funded, first cut, always the way. Right. Um, when I think about uh, getting back to though what you were mentioning about how do we sort of break down some of these barriers to ensure that underrepresented uh, categories inside of an organization become further represented. Um, you think about sort of you, you've written about this ethical design inside of, a, of inside of AI and sort of the reduction of the bias. Um, what are some of the things that you would say uh, to the audience today that if you were walking away to either implement potentially some type of intelligent tools or potentially have deployed them and they need to go back and check. What, what would those just key things be? Well, so, so I'm, I'm going to try to tick through them in a hurry, but they're all, this is going to be a list of rabbit holes. Okay. So the first thing is there isn't going to be a self-driving car for another 50 years. And the reason there isn't going to be a self-driving car for another 50 years is when people let the car drive itself, they stop paying attention and no car is good enough to allow the driver to not pay attention. And so people die Indeed. when you stop paying attention. The same thing's true of recommendations for uh, personnel changes, right? The machine will make a recommendation. 
if you don't agree with the machine's recommendation, you're going to have to explain it to somebody. And the machine has all of the data. So you're not going to go down that road too many times. Okay. Um, and that means that the biggest risk is letting the machine make the decision. And the hardest thing to do is staying awake so that you use the machine's input as part of the decision-making process, but not all of the decision-making process. Second thing to be aware of is machines model the world. There's, there's an old fashioned way of thinking about building a model of the world that is the model that uses the least um, number of variables is the best model. But that was, that was built in a time when models had to be laboriously documented on paper and in spreadsheets. And today, you can run 10 billion Monte Carlo simulations um, on Amazon without even browning out the system. Um, and so, so the idea of what's in a model is changing, but you will find models that use five data points to predict performance. And they're 80% accurate, um, but, but let's, let me talk about accuracy for a second. When in the early days, I was lucky enough to work on a project that was one of the first optical character recognition projects. And everybody was really excited because this huge drum scanner that took up a lot of space would turn a page of text into um, something digital in 10 minutes at 80% accuracy. And at 80% accuracy, it was completely unusable. 80% accuracy means one error every five characters. Um, and, and so you look, at, you look at most of the AI today and it offers 80% accuracy. So that means that not only can't you trust it, but you need to budget for the um, support staff when the machine offers something intelligible and you've got to make some sense out of it. And nobody includes that in the cost of having the tool. So the QA and sort of the upskilling of the bot or the intelligent automation itself. Yep, yep. And, and the upskilling of the people who have to use it and the demands placed that, you know, when you install these things, like you install a chatbot, the chatbot will handle 80% of the problems, but it's a Pareto analysis, right? It's the 80% that don't right. matter and the 20% that do matter, it can't handle. Right. And so, so the support staff that the chatbot turns things over to now doesn't have any easy problems to solve. They only have the 20% hardest problems to solve. And so your staffing for that group is wrong. Right. Um, and you're going to burn them out pretty fast if they have a steady diet of really hard problems to solve. Uh, and so, so the thing that people don't get about intelligent tools is that they become part of the system. And when they become part of the system, they change the system. And the real expense and potential with these tools is it's not the actual content of what they do, but the consequence in the larger system, right? And so, so when you talk about ethics then, and I, I'm doing an enormous amount of work helping companies with, with ethics and AI, we talk about ethics, what you're really trying to get at 
is the system implications of using the tool. The actual individual tool needs to be ethically constructed, but it's the implementation of the tool where the ethical problems actually emerge. Okay. Okay. No, that's, those are three great points for the audience, and I really appreciate you breaking it down for us that way. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll kind of close on that, Mark, with, uh, with one quick little story that I think emulates what you're talking about. Uh, had an opportunity to work with an organization a few years ago that had put in a, an automated assessment in place. And um, the, we did an overall analysis of, of about two years worth of work and found, quite honestly, that many times when the tool itself said, you know, that's a thumbs up higher, and yet the manager said not so much, but they moved forward. And then in the inverse with the tool said not so much and the manager said yes, we actually found that the manager was keyed in much more specifically. That right. those that had the thumbs up from the manager actually stayed longer, came out of the J curve faster, um, were more productive, et cetera. And the ones that the, they allowed the tool to override were typically the the faster turnover and the poor performers, and really all 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 that was an easy fix though, right? That was going back and trying to determine what were the characteristics and decision paradigm that the manager was using. But again, I think to your point, the tool has to create decision support, and not the decision point. Yeah, I don't know if this will make sense to you, but but I um, I think about the way that auto tuning is used in contemporary pop music. Nobody ever has a bad note in contemporary pop music. <laughs> and as a result, it sounds sterile. It sounds machine manufactured. And you get that same phenomena with all machine generated outcomes that, that they are so precise and so repeatable that you have to almost wince to use them. Um, that the, the authenticity of an analog decision is completely absent in machine analysis. And um, I think we want to preserve the authenticity of, of the human input to the process. I love that. Great way to close on that. John, thank you so much for your time and your insight and your knowledge. It's been a, a great time to talk with you today and uh, appreciate you just sharing that experience with us. Thanks. Yeah. And so maybe the next time we'll go off the deep end. Absolutely. <laughs> right into the deep end. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you.